so that we can see that Padmasambhava played a very important part in the introduction, in the establishment of Buddhism in Tibet. But we have to recognize at the same time that the exact nature of the role he played, the part he played, is not at all clear. The Tibetans simply say that he overcame the gods of Tibet. And they are quite happy to leave it there. That's quite clear, quite straightforward, in fact obvious, so far as they are concerned. He came and he overcame the gods of Tibet, and that was that. And Buddhism was established. But for us it isn't quite so easy. We can't help wondering, well, what does it all mean? Who or what are the gods of Tibet? And why did they become angry when Shantarakshita started teaching Buddhism? Why did they react in that rather unpleasant way? And what is meant by Padmasambhava's overcoming them? To us all this isn't clear, it isn't obvious. So let's try to go into it just a little. Because it's of great general interest and it's also of some significance for our whole Western Buddhist movement, especially our own branch of it. So let us begin by taking a look, a closer look, at Shantarakshita's teaching, because it's this that upset the gods of Tibet. We saw that Shantarakshita taught mainly three things. He taught the ten principles of skillful action, the 18 elements of perceptual situation and the 12 stages in the process of birth, death and rebirth. In other words, as I mentioned earlier, he taught elementary Buddhist ethics, elementary Buddhist psychology and elementary Buddhist metaphysics. Apparently, however, he said nothing about meditation. Hmm? He didn't say anything about symbolic ritual. And it seems he didn't tell the Tibetans any parables or stories or legends or anything of that sort. In other words, it seems quite clear from all the accounts that we have that Shantarachita's approach when he started teaching Buddhism in Tibet was predominantly, not to say exclusively, intellectual and rational. And this apparently was Shantarachita's approach anyway. We know, as I mentioned, that he wrote that great work, the Tattva Sangraha. And this is a very, very highly intellectual work indeed. So we can conclude about Shantarachita that though a great Bodhisattva, in fact he's known in Tibetan history as the Bodhisattva, that's how they refer to him, just the Bodhisattva. Though he was a Bodhisattva, though he was spiritually highly advanced, his approach to Buddhism, especially to teaching Buddhism, was predominantly intellectual. And that this, in fact, was so is shown by another incident which occurred soon after Shantarakshita's arrival in Tibet. Apparently, the king wanted to make quite sure about him. You know, in those days, all sorts of people were going about saying that they were great tantric yogis, teachers of Buddhism, teachers of meditation. Some of them weren't real teachers at all, and they're just wandering here and there, exploiting people. Huh? So the king had heard of this sort of thing. So he wanted to check up on Shantarakshita before he allowed him actually to start teaching. So he sent three ministers to interview him and they asked various questions. And 
one of the questions they asked him was this they asked what is your doctrine a very plain straightforward question what is your doctrine and Shantarachita replied according to the chronicle my doctrine is to follow whatever is proved correct after examining it by reason and is to avoid all that does not agree with reason this was his response this was his reply when he was asked what his doctrine was so perhaps we can begin to see why the gods of Tibet were displeased it's as though they weren't so much displeased with Buddhism itself or displeased that Buddhism itself was being preached they were displeased as it were with Shantarakshita's rather one-sidedly rational approach but you might ask another question you might ask well why should the gods of Tibet why should any gods for that matter dislike rationalism why should they not be happy about a rational approach I mean are the gods themselves not rational so one has to ask a further question one has to ask well who or what were even are the gods of Tibet what do they represent if we're not just going to dismiss them as scholars very often it was just sheer fiction just names nothing who were the gods of Tibet what did they represent so we can say that the gods of Tibet represented all the non-rational forces of the Tibetan psyche or if you like the forces of the Tibetan collective unconscious and these forces were as it were threatened even repressed by Shantarakshita's rationalism in fact we may say Shantarakshita doesn't even recognize the existence of the gods eh? he completely ignores them eh? he has nothing to do with them he's unaware of their existence so far as he is concerned they're just not there he just goes on preaching the ten ways of skillful action uh, the eighteen dhatus, the twelve nidanas eh? the gods just don't exist irrational forces don't exist they're not there so what do the gods do the gods are not going to take this lying down the gods react eh? the gods get angry they create havoc in the national life they insist on being recognized they demand to be recognized so Padmasambhava has to be called in so like Shantarakshita Padmasambhava is a great scholar a great intellectual he knows all the texts the scriptures the philosophy but his overall approach is not intellectual he's much more than a scholar much more than an intellectual he is a yogi he is a supreme yogi he is a meditator he is the master of the occult arts and the occult sciences he has spent much time in the cremation grounds in the burning grounds he has spent time there with the darkinis so this is a very mysterious word this word darkini eh? Padmasambhava has spent much time with the darkinis so who are the darkinis we have to ask that too because it throws a great deal of light on the character and the approach of Padmasambhava 
the Dakinis we may say very roughly are a sort of Buddhist equivalent of the Tibetan gods and goddesses. They are, as it were, the forces of inspiration which arise in the depths of the enlightened mind. The word Dakini itself, like the word Dakar, which is the masculine counterpart, comes from a root meaning space or the sky. So the Dakars and the Dakinis are those who belong to the sky. They fly through the sky. They travel through the sky. Hmm? And what is the sky? The sky is not the literal sky, not the sky of blue that we see with our eyes. The sky here is the sky, as it were, of the one mind, the sky of the absolute. And this sky of the one mind, the sky of the absolute, is not, as it were, vacant. It's not empty. Hmm? It's not inert but it's full of life and full of energy. There are all sorts of, as it were, currents of energy flowing through it, flowing across it all the time. Forces, if you like, arising within its immaculate depths all the time. And these currents, these forces, which fly, as it were, from side to side, or one shouldn't even say side to side because there are no sides, which disport themselves freely, as it were, in the sky of the absolute. These are personified by the Dakinis, the dark arts. And Padmasambhava in the burning grounds has spent much time in the company of the Dakinis. He's acquainted with these great spiritual forces. His experience is not just, as it were, uh, intellectual. He's even, we may say, the master of these forces. So on arrival in Tibet, what does Padmasambhava do? His approach, his attitude, is very different from that of Shantarakshita. He begins by recognizing the gods, huh? by seeing that there are gods. Yes, this god, that god, they're there. He sees them, he recognizes them. Not only that, he establishes contact with them. He, we are told, converts them. He transforms them into protectors of the Dharma. So what does this mean? Padmasambhava starts off by acknowledging those irrational, non-rational, even sometimes suprarational forces in the Tibetan psyche, and he integrates them. He succeeds in integrating them into the great current of the spiritual life of Tibetan Buddhism. He, as it were, harnesses their energy. He doesn't go against them. He carries them along with him. And then what happens? Once Padmasambhava has done this, once he's converted the gods and the goddesses, once he's transformed them into guardians of the Dharma, what happens next? What happens next is that Shantarakshita, the intellectual as it were, and Padmasambhava, the yogi, they together build and consecrate Samye, the great monastery. There's no antagonism as it were, between the two approaches, the rational, the non-rational. They're both necessary, they're complementary. And Shantarakshita and Padmasambhava each recognizes the greatness of the other. And then when Samya has been consecrated through their joint efforts, uh, through the collaboration of the intellectual and the yogi, what happens then next? Monks are brought from India. Young Tibetans are ordained. The Sangha is founded. In other words, the spiritual community comes into existence. 
So the significance of all this uh, for Buddhism in the West, for even our own movement, is so obvious that I need not spell it out word by word. Hmm? It's clear that it's not enough to appeal just to the rational mind. One must appeal also to the unconscious depths. It's not enough just to read books on Buddhism, not enough just to listen to lectures. One must also meditate. One must plumb the depths within oneself. One must chant, as we shall be chanting later on this evening. One must perform pujas, engage in symbolical ritual. It's not enough just to think, to think even about Buddhism, but one must feel. One must respond totally with one's whole being. Only when we can do this, only when a sufficient number of people can do this, shall we have a real, genuine, authentic Buddhist spiritual movement as distinct from a little wave of intellectual interest in this country. Only then shall we have a true spiritual tradition. Of course, we know very well that the situation here is very much more complicated than it was a thousand years ago in Tibet in Shantarakshita's and Padmasambhava's time. To begin with, we don't even have any gods. We don't have any gods of our own. Right? There are no indigenous British gods. So what's happened to them? You know? Where have all the gods gone? Right? Uh, where are they? Right? So I'm afraid we have to say, rather sadly, we have to confess that the gods have all been turned into devils. And they've been turned into devils quite a while now. They were turned into devils by Christianity because the Christian attitude towards gods, indigenous gods, gods of the earth and gods of the sky, is very different from the attitude to Buddhism. Uh, Christianity, in the past, has tended to regard the gods of the countries to which it spread as evil, and it therefore tried to destroy the gods, to stamp them out, to abolish even the memory of their names. So wherever it went in this country as in other countries, Christianity smashed the images, cut down the sacred groves, killed the priests, but it couldn't really destroy the gods because they had some real life and energy of their own. It could only repress them. So we may say a repressed god becomes a devil. Diabolus Deus Inversus Est. And these repressed gods that have been transformed into devils continue, we may say, to trouble us still. So it's time we recognized them. Time we established contact with them. Time that we transformed them from being devils back into being gods. And perhaps if we can do that, they will protect the Dharma in this country. Hmm?